Good morning, Gateway. Wasn't it just fabulous to see those beautiful young people being baptised? Always warms my heart to see that. And uh, we're finishing off our series this week. We've had three weeks to talk about how not to read the Bible. And I hope in all of that, you're finding out how to read the Bible as well. And I've given you some good news every week that you can be a thinking, intelligent, rational, curious follower of Christ and 100% believe in the trustworthiness and inspiration of the Bible. But we need to learn how to read it and how not to read it. This series has brought up some discussion. I just love that. Where are we up to? Well, very quickly. Number one, don't read it as if it's a modern book. Don't read it as a history textbook. Don't read it as a science textbook. Don't try to read it as a legal rule book. Don't read it as if it's not the most dangerous and transforming book in the world. Don't read it as if it's the only place that God speaks. Don't read it as if it cannot have any contradictions. And I said last week, not on the major issues. Don't read it without any awareness of the complexities of translation because every English Bible that we read is someone's interpretation of the original language. Don't read it without an awareness of your own interpretive lens. It's impossible to read it neutrally. And number 10, don't just read it alone. We're meant to read it in community. Well, we got to 10 points and I was tempted to leave it there, but realise there were still a couple of big no-nos hanging out there that needed to be discussed. And they have to do with the origins of the Bible and the authority of the Bible, just a few small matters. So let's start with the origins of the Bible. Where do you think it came from? We get some idea of from the Bible itself in the letter Paul wrote to his young apprentice, Timothy. One version says this, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching the truth, rebuking error, correcting faults and giving instruction for right living so that the person who serves God may be fully qualified and equipped to do every kind of good deed. The message says this, there's nothing like the written word of God for showing you the way to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Every part of scripture is God-breathed and useful one way or another. Inspired by God, God-breathed, two sort of translations of the same original word. What exactly does that mean? Now, some of you may have been brought up in evangelical traditions that taught you a doctrine of infallibility, which means that Every, every word of the Bible came straight from the mind of God and that therefore there can be no mistakes, no contradictions. Every word is of equal importance. Now, this idea really only took hold a few decades ago, and there's a story in that as well, and is mainly the child of the American Evangelical Church. Believe it or not, it's not such a big deal in other Christian traditions who would declare that the only infallible one is God himself. It's a complicated theory. But let me just say this. 
Can you make an argument for the infallibility of the Bible? Yes. Do you have to believe that to be a Christ follower? No. So let's look at that thought that the Bible is God-breathed. So we're up to number 11. Don't read the Bible as if God dictated it to robots. Now, Tim Mackey, who's a biblical scholar behind the brilliant Bible Project videos, which I'm sure many of you have seen, uses this Escher picture to try to explain the inspiration of the Bible. This is a visual paradox which describes the Orthodox Jewish Christian view of the Bible. It is a thoroughly human and a thoroughly divine book. It is written by human people who are bound by their context and their place in history, and yet the breath of God is breathing through it. God speaks through the Bible. Now, some people want to rub out one of the hands. If, if you rub out God's hands, you get just a book. No divine spark, just human interpretations. I don't believe this can be true for reasons I'll speak to at the end of this message. Some people want to rub out the human hand to say there is no human role in the writing. Some people find it hard to accept the authority of this book unless they, they see God almost putting people into trances and making them robots while he moved their hands to write the words. But accepting its humanness should not negate its power and authority as a vehicle through which God speaks. This is a paradox which is two different truths that can be true at the same time. We have to get comfortable with that when it comes to the Bible. And it leads to my 12th point. Don't try to explain away the paradoxes. Now, the Bible tells a unified story, but within that overarching story, there's a lot of complexity. Through the history of the church, we've tried to explain away the paradoxes and it has always led to division. Let me give you some examples. Is the spirit of Christ physically present in the communion elements or are we just remembering Christ symbolically when we take communion? I say yes to both, but this was part of what split the Catholic and the Protestant church. Are babies welcome into God's kingdom or should we be older to be baptized? The Bible says yes to both, but that's been part of the split between say Anglican and Baptist. Should we live a life of suffering or a life of triumph? The Bible says yes. If we live God's way, are we likely to have a blessed life or do, does bad stuff happen to righteous people? The Bible says, yes. Just compare Proverbs with Job if you don't believe me. Does the Bible talk about women not speaking in church or does it open the way for women to be fully involved? The Bible says, yes. Are we made in the 
very image of a perfect God or are we deeply flawed? Yes, it's complicated. Some of these paradoxes can't be resolved totally. We have to let the butterfly fly. But you will yell back at me, how do we know what is right? For instance, in the women's issue, churches have different opinions about this. Well, this leads me to what I think is the most important thing about understanding the Bible. And this is my last point. Don't forget that God is taking us somewhere. An understanding of the whole Bible story is the single most important tool for getting the Bible right. Despite the beautiful song, we do not live in a circle of life. We live in a line of history. It had a beginning and it will have an end. And it is essentially a cosmic love story. And this is a core Christian belief. Let's see if I can tell a story in two minutes with just four pictures, which will help you to understand the entire story of the Bible. Of course, we have to start with creation. We have God's incredible love for us. A creation birthed in equality and dignity and love. And he loved us enough to let us fly in freedom. And when we used our freedom, we used it to reject God in so many ways. We rejected his love and the love of fellow man. But right from the beginning, there was a rescue plan. There was always an ultimate plan to rescue us from ourselves and to call us back to Christ. So we have the coming of the Son of God. Christ, to announce to us that there is a way back. He calls to us, join me, and we will work together to bring the kingdom of God to reality. As Christ shows us the kingdom, he, he leaves us after he has risen from the dead to prove he, who he really is. And he leaves us with his Holy Spirit to accomplish his work. And his work is to make God's vision come true on earth. What is that vision? We see it talked about in the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible. And here's some of the verses I love so much. I looked again. I saw a huge crowd, too huge to count. Everyone was there. Everyone was there, all nations and tribes, all races and languages. And I heard a voice thunder from the throne. Look, God has moved into the neighborhood, making his home with men and women. They're his people and he's their God. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. Death is gone for good. Tears gone, crying gone, pain gone. All the first order of things gone. The enthroned continued. Look, I'm making everything new. 
So the Bible tells us that at the end of all things, he will come again to bring heaven to earth, to make his home with his people. So when you read sections of the Bible that seem to be okay with the practice of slavery, for instance, we compare that to where the story is going. Where will the kingdom end up? In the kingdom of God, there will be no slavery. When we read some sections, it seemed to sound like it's they're, they're putting women down or, or discriminating against them. We compare it to the trajectory of our ultimate destination in God. There will be no discrimination in the kingdom. All God's people will be loved. All will be valued. God is working all things towards his plan of redemption for all. Now, how do I know this? I know it because I read it in the scripture itself. Now, here is a powerful story that makes me love God even more. Just let me set it up quickly. In Old Testament times, God made a a covenant with the Hebrew people through Abraham to make them his special people who would be a nation of priests to show the character of God to the world. Now, in order to do this, they were set apart with a whole different way of living to the tribes around them. Ancient Near East people all worshipped different gods and they were brutal. God's constant warning was to stay away from those people who worship brutal gods. They will take you to places that are dark and evil. Don't marry into their families. Don't do business with them. But the people forgot their promises and ended up forgetting their first love, Yahweh. Now, in the book of Ezra, there is a record of a brief reformation when a group of Jews who were exiled in Persia were allowed to go back to their homeland and rebuild the temple. But Ezra the priest was horrified to find that the Jewish people of the land had not stayed pure and had intermarried with the Gentile races around them. Here's a section from Ezra. And now, O God, after all this, what can we say for ourselves? For we have thrown your commands to the wind. They told us the land you're taking over is polluted with the obscene vulgarities of the people who live there. They filled it with their moral rot from one end to the other. Whatever you do, don't give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor marry your sons to their daughters. Don't cultivate their good opinions. Don't get them to like you so you can make a lot of money. Ezra was just throwing himself before God in desperation. Now, in the time between the Old and the New Testaments, the separation of Jews and Gentiles became more and more pronounced. So by the time of Christ, no law-abiding Jew would be seen dead anywhere near a Gentile, let alone eat in their homes. Okay, fast forward 200 years. Jesus has revealed himself and the character of the kingdom of God. And after that first miraculous Easter, he has returned to his father, leaving the early church to spread the good news with the help of the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to jump to Acts chapter 10. This is the story of the beginnings of the church of God. On a particular day, two things are happening simultaneously. 
Cornelius, who is a Gentile, he's a Roman centurion, but a very compassionate man, has a vision where an angel tells him to send someone to Joppa to bring home a man named Peter. Yes, this is the Peter, the disciple of Christ. Now, at the same time, Peter is praying on a rooftop in Joppa and he sees a vision of stuff coming down from heaven that is, is all the things that Jews are commanded in the Old Testament not to eat, like, um, like pork and shellfish. And God says to Peter in the vision, eat. And Peter says, no way, God. And God says, eat. And Peter says, are you trying to trick me into disobeying you? And God says, Peter, if God says it's okay, it's okay. Don't call something unclean if God has said it's all good. Now, at that very moment, there's a guy downstairs in Peter's house who says to him, will you come and visit my master Cornelius? So even though Cornelius is a Gentile, Peter the Jew goes with him. Every other Jew would have considered Cornelius dirty, impure, not to be associated with. But he enters his house and sees a group of people hungry for the good news about Christ and a light bulb goes on. Ah, God, this is what you are doing. This is where you are taking us out of prejudice and discrimination and towards radical acceptance and unity. Peter fairly exploded with this good news. You can read this in, in Acts chapter 10. It's God's own truth. Nothing could be plainer. God plays no favorites. It makes no difference who you are or where you're from. If you want God and are ready to do as he says, the door is opened. The message he sent to the children of Israel that through Jesus Christ, everything is being put together again. Well, he's doing it everywhere, among everyone. Peter does something directly opposite to the commands of his known scripture. He would have grown up reading Ezra, reading in the Old Testament about um, Gentiles. But he went against it in order to follow the, this voice of God as it leads in the direction that God is now taking his people. God is always doing something new, but step by step, he's always heading in the same direction towards the full revelation of who he is and he is love. Now that is the best news that you will ever hear. So let me finish by saying, do read your Bible as the authority and truth of God expressed through human authors. And how do I know it has divine authority? Here's something to think about. The early church grew and grew across the world for 300 years after Christ walked the earth without the official New Testament. 
It wasn't put together as a library of books till around about the year 350. Thousands of people believed in Jesus as the Messiah sent from God, not because they read about him, but because he came back from the dead. And this fact was witnessed by hundreds of people and they told the story of what they had seen. We have seen it with our own eyes. God himself is with us. Not a great teacher, not a holy man, but God in flesh. So our faith, people, is based on an event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And the Bible has authority because it is a written witness to that fact. The Bible is called the Word, but it is a witness to the true Word, who is Jesus. It says in the book, the Gospel of John, so the Word became human and made his home amongst us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. How about we pray together as we finish? God, we want to thank you that you have given us your Bible. Lord, it it is a complicated document and yet somehow when we read it, we can hear the very breath of God speaking to us. Help us to open the book, to read it, to hear your voice. You have said in the book of Psalms that your word is a lamp to our feet. God, we need illumination to know what direction we should be walking in. And we thank you for your Bible. Amen.